0: God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So wrote the author of Hebrews to the congregation of Rome in the early years of the 60s AD. He told them that they were in the midst of enduring what he called fatherly discipline from God. They were being reproved. They were being chastised. And there are two truths that I want to point out to you about this fatherly discipline which all of the children of God partake in. First, God's discipline is corrective and formative but it is never retributive. All of God's retributive wrath against our sins, all of it, past and present and future, were poured out upon Christ and borne by him to the cross. Therefore, when God disciplines his children, he does not discipline them in wrath or in anger Although, as we will see, sometimes it may feel that way. No, he disciplines them in love. All, every bit of God's fatherly discipline is aimed either at breaking the power of indwelling sin, that would be corrective discipline, or strengthening those areas of our souls that remain weak and unruly, that would be formative discipline. But there is no more retribution or punishment for those who are in Christ. So says Romans 8.1. The author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 12 and verse 9. Besides this, he says, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the second truth that I want to point out about God's fatherly discipline is that though it is not punitive, it is Painful. It hurts. Whether it is corrective discipline that is the result of our sin or formative discipline that is the result of our weakness, it is painful to endure. When I was a child and I broke the rules, my parents disciplined me. That was corrective discipline. And it hurt, usually on my rear end. If it doesn't hurt, It's not effective. Likewise, when I train my body, which is formative discipline, in order to eradicate weakness, it hurts. If it doesn't hurt, it's not doing anything. I remember in my high school gym, in these huge letters on the side of the wall, it said, no pain, no gain. If it doesn't hurt, Discipline is not effective, but if we will persevere, if we will receive the correction or formation which God intends, he promises that the training will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We will grow strong in faith and in holiness. In Psalm 6, David is undergoing the Lord's discipline. Whether it's corrective discipline, which is the result of his sin, or formative discipline owing to his weakness, is unclear. The superscription, which says to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the sheminith a psalm of David, it doesn't give us any indication or any clue as to what the context of this psalm is. Neither is there a definitive clue in the text itself. Some commentators think that David is speaking out of some severe illness that he is enduring. That would be discipline. Others think David's suffering is owing to personal sin. That would be discipline. And I tend to agree with the second opinion because even though Psalm 6 contains no mention of sin or really no confession of sin, it bears a lot of similarity to Psalm 32, which is one of the preeminent, preeminent psalms of confession found in the Psalter. In Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5, David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As you will notice, there are a lot of similar images between verse 2 and verse 6 of Psalm 6, bones, groaning, weariness, to what we just read in Psalm 32. But in the end, it really doesn't matter because all discipline is from God and it all serves the same purpose, namely to purge us of our sin and our weakness and to train us for righteousness, I want you to listen to me very, very closely. I'm going to make this as clear as I possibly can. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, if your faith is in Jesus, all suffering is discipline. It is all intended to build you up in faith, to eradicate the weakness of unbelief, and to raise you up in righteousness and holiness. Every bit of it is purposeful. So are you in pain this morning? Are you suffering? Can you relate to David's anguished cries? Then you are enduring the Lord's discipline. It may be the result of sin. Or it may be the result of weakness. In the end, it does not bat- matter because both come From the Lord's hand. And the author of Hebrews says that the peaceful fruit of righteousness belongs to those who are trained by this discipline which they endure. Therefore, I want to walk through Psalm 6 this morning and I want to show you how to be trained by your pain, how to embrace the purposeful realm of your discipline. And to learn the lesson that God intends for you to learn through that suffering, through that pain. I want to show you how to receive the Lord's discipline and derive the loving benefit which he designs. We're going to break Psalm 6 into four stanzas and we're going to look at each one in turn. So let's look first at the fear of the disciplined in verses 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now let me first tell you why I use the word fear, and then I'm going to show you of what David was afraid The ESV doesn't help us out very much in their translation of these verses and giving us the proper sense, especially of verses two and three. Look down there at the second line of verse two. When David says, for my bones are troubled, troubled is not a good translation of the word behal in the Hebrew. That word means to be disturbed or to be terrified. The same word appears in verse 3. My soul is also greatly troubled. What what he means there is my soul is greatly terrified. It's greatly disturbed by fear. Of all of the modern translations that are out there that are worth anything, I think that the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, gets David's meaning right. The CSB translates verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaking with terror. And you, O Lord, how long? So David is terrified of something. What is it? I see two sources of terror in these verses. Number one, I think David is terrified that God is punishing him in wrath as an enemy rather than disciplining him in love as a son. That's the sense of verse one. David is terrified of the wrath of God. Where have we seen someone shaking in terror before the prospect of God's wrath before? Can you think of a place? You ought to be able to. The Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14. There too Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. He was sorrowful even unto death. He staggered and fell to the ground sweating great drops of blood. He was terrified of the cup of God's wrath which he begged God to remove from him. That's the closest biblical parallel to what David is experiencing in Psalm 6. David is terrified that because of his sin, he has been cut off from the Lord, and he is pleading with God to treat him as a son and not as an enemy. Note that David does not question the justice of what he's receiving. He does not call God to account for inflicting him with pain, rather he pleads for mercy. He pleads for undeserved grace. He does not accuse the Lord of injustice. So he's afraid of God's wrath. Secondly, he's terrified that his affliction will end in death and following death, destruction. In verse 2, he says that he is languishing, a word which speaks of the withering up of vegetation when it doesn't receive the water that it needs it says my soul is drying out my strength is gone my body and my soul are in terror and worse the lord has been silent through it all it's been a long time since david has felt the smile of god upon him it seems rather that every time he looks into heaven he sees or feels God's frown. So he says, how long? Will this affliction never end? Will you never again let me rejoice in your presence? Am I cut off from the covenant? What are we to learn from these opening verses? Two lessons. First, We need to acknowledge that David, the man after God's own heart, endured severe discipline in which he felt that God had abandoned him in anger and that he was now the object of God's wrath. David, the covenant one, the man after God's own heart, felt utterly cut off from the God whom he loved. Now I don't know if you've ever been there and I don't know if perhaps you are there now but if you are you should take heart because you are not alone. And you should consider that just because you feel lost and abandoned you feel as if you've sinned your way out of the covenant mercies of God you feel as if you have sinned your way out of the the reach of God's arm. It does not mean that it is true. God is dealing with you as with children. And his dealings with his children are wise and they are mysterious. I want you to think of it this way. If discipline is the result of sin, that is, if it is corrective discipline, then the more painful the discipline, the more hateful that sin becomes to us. What parent disciplines their their child without some form of physical or emotional pain? What effect would a painless discipline have? It would have zero effect in correcting an evil behavior. It is the suffering that causes the evil to, to lose its allure. It's the pain that causes the sin to lose its attraction. And so God's discipline wouldn't be effective if he didn't leave you in your pain for a time. The Lord inflicts us with severe and painful discipline that we may learn to hate the sin that otherwise would destroy us. And if the discipline is is the result of weakness, in other words, if it is formative discipline, what could you possibly learn from a painless trial? You weightlifters out there, how much muscle mass do you gain by only ever lifting weight that's easy for you to raise? None. It is no different with your soul. Your soul is never strengthened apart from trial. Ever. Your faith is never strengthened apart from suffering. Ever. How would God train you to persevere without pain? How would God train you to seek his face if he never withheld his face? So number one. Discipline is not a strange thing for the children of God. It is a common thing. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that we all are participants in it. If you're not a participant in the Lord's discipline, he says you're an illegitimate child and not a true son. Second, I want you to note what David could not see in the midst of the discipline. Namely, that God was not dealing with him in anger or in wrath, but rather in mercy and in love. Discipline is love. Pain is mercy. As the author of Hebrews reminded us, God disciplines those whom he loves. Therefore, if our lives are absent from the Lord's discipline, then we are not loved. At least not as sons We are illegitimate children and not sons, he says. But if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear from the Lord's discipline. He possesses no anger towards you. Every ounce of his wrath, every bit of his anger was poured out upon Christ who stood as your substitute in your place in the judgment of God at the cross. Therefore, All of God's dealings with you, even the painful ones, nay, especially the painful ones, are his mercy and his love towards his children. He is forming you into the people that he wants you to be. He is forming you into the kind of person who can be infinitely happy forever. You need to settle that now, theologically, because you will not be able to see it experientially in the midst of your trial. David couldn't see it, and neither will you. So settle it now. God always acts in love towards his children. In verses 4 and 5, we find the prayer of the discipline. Out of his despair, David cries, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So David begins to plead for his deliverance from this present affliction, which he knows to be disciplined for his sin, but he does not know when or if Or whether he will survive it. And so he argues with the Lord. It's interesting. He pleads his case. He argues that the Lord should deliver him, and that for two reasons. Number one, he says the Lord should deliver him for the sake of your steadfast love. Now here we find once again, we've seen it before, we're going to see it so many times in the Psalms, we see that great Old Testament word kesed, which refers to the the covenant mercies of God. It's often translated as loving kindness or unfailing love or mercy. So once again, David in his darkest hour, he turns to the covenant by which Yahweh has bound himself to his people in general, and has bound himself to David in particular. He essentially pleads with the Lord to glorify himself by showing David mercy instead of wrath. He says, it is to your greater glory to show yourself faithful to the covenant that you've made with me than to pour out your wrath upon me in your justice and righteousness. Now, God doesn't need this reminder. God knows exactly what brings him the greatest glory. Indeed, he always acts in the way that brings him the greatest glory. It is David who needs this reminder. God cannot act faithlessly to the covenant that he has made with his children. He cannot deny himself. But we need to be reminded of that truth. And so in our darkest hours, we need to remind ourselves of the covenant. We need to remind ourselves that God has bound himself to my everlasting good. He has sworn by his name that he will form me into the image of Christ by any means necessary. And so there's this effect of pleading with the Lord on that basis. God, you've sworn by your name that you will never cast out those who draw near to you. John six thirty seven. And so honor your covenant. Don't cast me away. It's the essence of what David's praying. And God will never do so. He cannot deny his covenant because he cannot deny himself. Second, though, David pleads with the Lord to deliver him on the basis of the fact that God is praised by the living and not the dead. Now, there are a couple of different ways to understand verse 5. Verse 5 is the first appearance of the Old Testament word sheol. And it's hard to really put your finger on what that word means. Means in the Old Testament. It could refer simply to the generic abode of the dead. There are sometimes in the Old Testament where Sheol seems to refer to the place that all the dead go. Or it could refer to the place of punishment in distinction from the place of blessing. So therefore, it would be the place that the evil dead go. See, the Old Testament doesn't have a very well-developed sense of the afterlife. It doesn't have a well-developed theology of the afterlife. Consequently, sheol is used sometimes just in the generic sense of the grave. One commentator said, "...a gray, dusty, shadowy existence from which Saul and the witch of Endor summoned forth Samuel, for instance." Other times, Sheol is used in the more specific sense of the place of the punishment of the wicked, which is the way that Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 38, 18, when he says, For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Therefore, I think it's in the second sense that David is using the word in verse 5. In other words, I think that David is still expressing a fear of eternal punishment, And his argument for why the Lord should show him mercy and not confine him to Sheol is because in Sheol he cannot give God praise. So David rather shamelessly argues on the basis of God's greater glory in the salvation of his redeemed. So David pleads with the Lord and he argues his case before God on the basis of God's faithfulness, number one, and God's glory, number two. It will bring God greater glory to honor the covenant that he's made with David, that's verse four. And it will bring God greater glory to deliver David so that he can praise him in life, that's verse five. But notice how David does not argue. He does not argue that his present suffering is unjust or is inconsistent with God's dealings with him. David knows that he is not innocent. He knows that God has not treated him unjustly. Rather, he argues on the basis of God's mercy and God's glory. In other words, that displays a humble repentance that draws the ear of the Lord. God will not hear your prayer so long as you are arguing your innocence. He will not respond to your pleas for deliverance so long as you are accusing him of injustice in your suffering. He will respond when the purpose of that discipline and the purpose of that suffering has been achieved. Namely, your humble repentance. Every breath you take, every gift you receive is mercy. God owes you nothing. God does not owe you salvation, God does not owe you deliverance, but God owes himself faithfulness to his covenant and to his word. He will not, he cannot deny his promise. So that is our plea in the midst of trial. God, you have sworn by your name to bring me safely into your kingdom. So do it. The next two verses show David in utter despair. This is his lowest point. This is his rock bottom. He says, I am weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now obviously David is putting on his poet's hat and he's using a little bit of hyperbole here, right? He's not really flooding, his bed's not floating away on a river of tears. But the truth behind it is is quite real. This is a man who is so spiritually and emotionally distraught that it's taking a toll on his physical body. Have you ever seen someone who's been weeping for a long time? Their eyes are bloodshot, their eyelids are swollen, their cheeks are stained with dried, salty tears. They're hunched over, they walk with this sort of exhausted stagger. That's David's demeanor. The end of verse 7 adds a new dimension to his suffering that's not been previously mentioned. See, not only is David in turmoil, experiencing internal and, and spiritual suffering, but his turmoil is also external and relational. Clearly, this is the case, regardless of which crisis in David's life brought forth this psalm. A man in a high position like David's has a lot of enemies, and those enemies love nothing more than to kick you when you're at your lowest. And that's what they're doing to David. This is another aspect of God's discipline. When all goes wrong, when you sin and God brings down upon you his chastening rod, you watch, your friends will dwindle away and your enemies will multiply. You will feel as if you have some sort of contagious plague they'll vanish, they'll disappear. Mark my words, which is why it is so precious to have friends who will stick by you even when you sin. Even when you're undergoing discipline, even when everyone else has turned on you in self-righteous scorn. Do you have friends like that? You need to get some. Are we a church like that? Are we friends of sinners? Or do we become their foe? Because I pray that God would make us a safe place for sinners to undergo the discipline of the Lord. A place where they can grieve A place where they can heal, a place where they can find restoration, and a place where they feel and experience grace. Well, to this point, Psalm 6 has been depressing, but it doesn't end that way. Sin will not have the last word in the life of one of God's redeemed you remember when you were a child and you disciplined, or you disobeyed your dad in some big way and he was really, really mad at you? After the discipline, which for many of us took the form of the rod of correction, he would send you to your room to, quote, think about what you've done. How long would he stay away? Well, who knows for sure, but it felt like hours. It was agonizing. You knew that you had disappointed and hurt the person that you loved most in the world. And you were ashamed and you felt as if your relationship with your dad was irreparably broken. Surely he could never love you or trust you again. But then what happened, assuming that you had a good and loving father? There would come a time... When you would hear a knock on the door, and your dad would come into your room, and he would wrap his arms around you, and he would reaffirm his love for you, and you would find out that the relationship was never really broken, indeed, how could it be, and you would be restored to communion. And what followed would be some of the sweetest fellowship and communion that you ever enjoyed with your father. That's the sense underlying verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What's happened? I mean, what, how does David know for sure that his prayer has been heard. How did he know that God was coming to his rescue? Well, the text doesn't say. Maybe he had received some revelatory word from Nathan or another one of the prophets. Maybe it was an inner sense of assurance and comfort spoken by the Spirit himself to David's heart. Maybe it was less mystical than that. Maybe faith just finally won out and David became convinced that the covenant would stand and God would come to his rescue. Why? Because he had sworn by his name to lead David into his everlasting kingdom. But for whatever reason... Beginning in verse 8, the fear is gone, having turned to confidence. The sorrow is gone, having turned to joy. There's a great turnaround that's exhibited in these last three verses, where once, at the beginning of the psalm, it was David's enemies who exulted, while David was ashamed and terrified. Terrified, bahal. Now, David's confident... That the Lord has accepted and restored him, and now his enemies are the ones who are troubled. bahau God is coming. He's heard the cry of his beloved, and he's coming to rescue and restore. He's going to wrap his arms around his son. He's going to vindicate him in the sight of his enemies, and one day he's going to do the same thing for you. Now, the promise of the author of Hebrews is that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So, in light of what we've seen in Psalm 6, how ought we to respond to our sufferings, all of which, if you're a child of God, are discipline, either corrective or formative, from the hand of the Lord and from his heart of love towards you? How shall we respond The author of Hebrews says, if we're trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We'll come to share in God's holiness. So how are we trained by it? Let me offer you four steps. Number one, we should repent. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is the direct result of sin. That's not true. You remember when... um, Jesus and his disciples were walking through town one day and the disciples looked at the man who was born blind and they pointed out and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This man was clearly suffering. He'd spent his life suffering. Jesus' response was, neither. This man was born blind so that in him the glory of God might be displayed. You may be suffering so that the glory of God might be displayed in your faith and in your perseverance. It may not be the direct result of sin, but it may. And wisdom would suggest that we ought to consider that possibility first. Never assume, in other words that you or anyone else is suffering because of sin, but always consider the possibility. So ask the Lord whether he is chastening you for some sin, and if so, repent. How do you ask? Well, I suggest the words of David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, And know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He will answer that prayer. He will search your heart. He will show you your sin. Listen to me. It is an unloving and incompetent father. Who disciplines his children and does not tell them why. God is neither unloving nor incompetent. If he is disciplining you for your sin, he will tell you so. And if he does, repent. Second, remain faithful to the Lord. Notice that when heaven went silent, David cried out all the more. It is a stiff necked and obstinate child who responds to his father's discipline by giving his father the silent treatment in a childish attempt to punish his father for that discipline. So don't be childish. Receive the Lord's discipline in humility and stay faithful. Keep reading your Bible, keep praying, keep coming to church. For one thing, you will likely shorten the length of your affliction. And for another thing, you will be far more likely to learn the lesson that God intends to teach you through your suffering. Third, reach out to friends, the real kind, for help. Just because the Lord is disciplining you doesn't mean that you must suffer alone. Indeed, you must not attempt to suffer alone. You have friends here who will walk with you through your pain. This church will be the friend of sinners. This church will be a place where sinners can find grace and healing and help and restoration. There is only one time When the church must join the Lord in his discipline. And that's when the Lord's discipline fails to bring about the repentance of the sinner. In that time, the church is called to recognize the Lord's discipline publicly in this formal act that is outlined for us in 1 Corinthians 5. But that's a topic for another time. If you respond in repentance, and I'm going to assume that that's what you do because that's what children of God do... The church will embrace you as a brother or a sister. We will never turn our back on you, no matter how grievous your faults. So don't suffer alone. And finally, remember God's covenant promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Your discipline will not last forever. Every parent, I hope that it's not just me, has had the experience of disciplining their child, sending them to their room, and then forgetting that they've done so, until hours later when said child comes out with tear-stained cheeks and asks, Daddy, can I come out now? Please tell me that I'm not the only one that has done that. Well, listen, your heavenly father never forgets that he sent you to your room. Your discipline will not last a moment longer than he intends for your good. He will come, he will heal, he will embrace, and he will restore. The Lord is a good father. He disciplines those whom he loves, and he does so for our good that we may share in his holiness.